0: Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mains.
1: Hey there, welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, Thanksgiving edition, where our strategies are like Thanksgiving leftovers, just as good, if not better, the next day. I'm your host, Jeff Maynes. Help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of, and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Well, happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Just in case you don't know, today is a holiday here in the States, where we celebrate the harvest, the fruits of our labor, and take time to reflect on the many blessings that we have. The true riches, of course, are friends, family, and people we get to do life with every day. We have a great show for you today and perfect for a road trip and work really hard to be family friendly. If we hop into our SaaS Fuel Time Machine and go back, say, 400 years or so, back to the very first Thanksgiving, it is a shining example of partnership and collaboration. You know, it didn't take too long for things to go sideways as partnerships turned into everyone looking out for their own interest and preserving their way of life. And 400 years later, maybe we still aren't doing so great, at least some days. And I'm certainly aware that can be the case with some of those weird relatives around the holidays, too. And uh, side note, if you don't have any of those weird relatives, then you're the one. I love the motto of the United States, E Pluribus Unum. Out of the many, one. And as we think about the essence of Thanksgiving, it's a symbol of unity and celebration of diversity. We don't have to look any further than our own Thanksgiving tables to find that. An array of dishes as diverse as our stories and the beauty of unity in diversity. Thanksgiving is not just about turkey or stuffing. It's a celebration of coming together, embracing differences and creating something beautiful from them. Just as each dish on your table brings its unique flavor while contributing to the entire feast, you know, every individual in a team brings their own perspective, enriching the collective experience as well. In the tapestry, every thread counts and it adds strength and beauty. And here we talk a little bit about our Thanksgiving recipe for diversity. So here's our Thanksgiving recipe for unity in diversity. Number one, embrace differences. Just like a Thanksgiving meal, a family and a team is vibrant when it's diverse recognize and celebrate the different background skills and perspectives that each member brings. You know, it's the sweet potatoes with marshmallows next to the green beans. I mean, who would have thought, you know? It's unexpected, but delightful. Wouldn't be the same without it. Second, foster open communication. Keep the conversation flowing like the gravy. Encourage open, respectful dialogue where ideas are debated, not the people behind them. Creates an environment where everyone feels heard and valued. We don't have to agree about everything. And honestly, I hope we don't all think the same, but we have to value the dignity of every single person, even when their ideas may be a little bit quirky. Sometimes it's us that's quirky. And number three, cultivate respect and love. Let respect be the turkey on your table, central and indispensable. Respect for each person's worth, coupled with genuine care. That's the foundation of a united and effective team. And it'll also make the holiday extra special as we enjoy the richness of different dishes, let's commit to building spaces where differences are not just tolerated, but embraced. Where communication is open and every voice is respected, where we debate ideas, respect people, and love one another. So here's to a Thanksgiving that celebrates unity and diversity, a table where everyone has a seat and a feast that is as inclusive as it is delicious. This holiday season, check out my book, Small Fish, Big Pond, building a world-class business that swims circles around competitors. Small Fish, Big Pond delivers powerful marketing and leadership lessons guaranteed to enhance your marketing message, wrap value around your clients, and guide their buying journey to conclude that your company is the only solution for them. It includes step-by-step frameworks, time-tested growth principles to attract ideal clients, convert them, and then transform them into your brand ambassadors. Pick up the print, ebook, or audio today at smallfishbigpond.com, Amazon, or your favorite book source. And remember, all profits go to charity. We've got some great deals going on right now for Black Friday, and still all profits go to charity. Our founder last Tuesday was Adam White, who has built and sold over 20 internet and SaaS businesses. We talked about building companies that others see as valuable. And our expert last week was James Allen, who runs Profit Your Knowledge and hosts a podcast by the same name. In both, he shows leaders how to engage their prospects by creating knowledge products, books, courses, those kinds of things around their domain expertise. And so we talked about doing that around your SaaS business. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is John Barrows, the driving force behind JB Sales. He brings real-world expertise to the forefront of sales training. As CEO, he's not just teaching, but actively selling personally prospecting, and managing deals. This is a hands-on approach that has shaped sales teams at giants like Salesforce.com, Zoom, and LinkedIn, proving that to teach sales effectively, you absolutely have to live it, especially in today's rapidly evolving market. Welcome, John Barrows. Hey, John. Welcome to SaaS Fuel.
0: Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate you uh, having me on.
1: You're a sales expert, and would love to hear about how you got into sales and what that journey has been like.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think a sales expert's a relative term here, but <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been in the game for a while. Um, so yeah, I mean, my my entree into sales is very similar to a lot of people, right? And I'm 47 years old now, so 20 whatever, 27, 28, nine years ago. There was no real degree in sales. Um, you know, you you kind of fell into it just like everybody else. Thankfully, now you can get your degree in sales. There's about I think about two hundred colleges where you can actually get your your master's or uh, major in sales. But when back then it wasn't. So I got my degree in marketing, mm-hmm. and then you know I got into sales with uh, Dewalt Power Tools, and it was it was interesting because it wasn't a um, the job was, uh, it was more event marketing. They had it under the umbrella of sales. But really, my job was just to drive around in a Dodge Ram pickup truck, <laughs> give away free tools to construction workers. So, um, But after that, uh, that was kind of the first intro. And then about six months into that, I got promoted to the, the Home Depot team. And that was where I had to take, you know, Home Depot obviously had to buy DeWalt tools, but I had to take that $10,000 order and turn it into a 50000 or or $100,000 order. And I did that through, you know, cross sales and all that other stuff. Um, and that's really kind of, okay, a little bit more sales, but still not like hardcore. And then I, and then I went to Xerox, uh, and I started selling copiers, and not just copiers, but copiers to the government. So it was about as bad as it got. I mean, talk about selling a commodity, right? It's like 45 pages <laughs> a minute over 42 pages. So anyways, but that's really... I mean, Xerox had a great sales training program. Um, yes, for, they did for it um, back then and so i went through that that's where I, like i said i got my I, and i learned a lot in that role as far as you know design thinking and bottom up selling versus top down selling relationship development how to take rejection obviously and um and then after that i started a company with a friend of mine from high school um, doing outsourced it services to the SMB market so when i was like 23 years old you know i didn't know what i was doing so i took every training i could i took sandler miller Hyman, taz spin all of it and i came across this group called basho and i loved it because it was super tactical it was the, the training was super tactical and it was stuff i could actually do I'm, I'm a very keep it simple stupid guy like it's just give me the basics and, and let me go and um and i used it to help grow thrive up we ended up being the fastest growing company in massachusetts for a few years in a row got us to about 12 uh Got about 85 employees, or 85 employees, about 12 million in revenues, and then sold to Staples. Uh, Staples came and bought us. Uh, spent about a year going through that integration. Come to find out, apparently, I'm not a corporate guy. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have much of a filter, and I really don't like playing politics. So after a little while, uh, Staples uh, offered me another position. Uh, they fired me, and then then I joined Basho, but not because I wanted to be a trainer. Um, you know that tra- that training company. It was because they had a really interesting model where you had to sell to train, right? Because I, I didn't mm-hmm. really like trainers up until that point in my career. Because most trainers I had come yeah. across were sales professionals or professional presenters. And I didn't want to be that guy. And so Basha was like, no, 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 you have to use this stuff so you sell, so you train. Right? And so I liked that and uh, took on some bigger accounts, brought on some bigger ones. And then to make a long story short, they screwed it up and I took it over. Uh, so about 12, 15 years ago at this point, I went off on my own JB Sales and um, took my clients and brought, you know, and got some new ones. So now I work with companies like Salesforce, LinkedIn, Box, Dropbox. You know, Okta, Amazon, Google, uh, a bunch of other companies, you know, those are the big ones, but there's a ton of, you know, smaller SaaS companies that I work with as well. And I do training for them, uh, prospecting, negotiations, everything else. Yeah.
1: And you still do all that today. I mean, one of the things that kind of one of your, your core things is you can't teach sales unless you live it and you still do all that today. Is that correct? that's
0: yeah. And that's the thing. I think it's hard right now. I've always felt like you kind of had to be in the game to teach the game when it came to sales. Cause you know, our bullshit meters are way through the roof, you know, sales reps can smell bullshit a million bucks away. And you know, when you're standing up there and I can tell you've never done what you're telling me what to do, or if you did it, it was 20, 30 years ago, back in my day, it's just hard, you know, in general for me to give you any credibility, but now I think is is absolute, right? Because if you, there's a lot of, you know, influencers, if you will, that have come out in the past five or six years about how great they've been in sales and how they were the first person before, you know, and we reached a billion dollars. <laughs> right. And it's like, the past 10 years, have, I'm sorry, like, and I'll, I'll say it, if you got into sales after 2000, tech sales, um, after 2010, it has not been that hard. I'm sorry, it just hasn't. Money's been free, grow at all costs. Clients don't give a shit about ROI. They'll, they'll have four different solutions that do kind of the same thing. Who cares? Cause their top line revenue was the main driver for the past 10 years right. when interest rates were so low and money was free and VCs were just shoveling money into this industry that, but blasting out template emails, you know, setting up, Disco calls with anybody with a pulse, droning through Bant questions, you know, droning through a PowerPoint presentation that nobody gives a shit about bringing your SE in to do the majority of the work and then bringing your VP to close it and then offering a massive discount. Like that's just not selling. You know what I mean? Like, and now that things are hard, there's like, we've skipped the fundamentals for an entire generation of sales professionals. And so now the things are hard to sell and you layer on AI into this mess if you are not in the game working and trying and meeting and, and trying to see and what's going on right now, I, it's, I have a hard time listening to you. So yes, I have my own quota. I sell all my own stuff. I prospect every day. I have 10 to 20 deals in my pipeline at any given point in time. I run discovery calls. I do negotiations and I train all that stuff so that I can talk about reality, right? And I can sell, say to somebody, hey, look, you know, I, I just tried this yesterday. Don't do that. That was a bad idea. <laughs> but hey, I just this. And this worked. Right. And I think that's the key right now is, is, you know, is, is being in the game and, and being conscious of what's happening right now and trying to evolve. Right. Because right now, if you are not agile as far as your sales process or your, your, your approach to anything, I think you're going to get left behind pretty fast.
1: I think you're right. So what is it in today's environment that makes a great sales professional? Yeah, I think
0: it's, it's changing in front of us. Um, You know, with the advent of AI, I really do think that this is the the skills needed to be a great sales rep are are shifting, right? Um, You know, storytelling is great, but I I think ultimately, it comes down to empathy, curiosity, and um, business acumen, right? Because a lot of the other stuff can be done by AI, like AI doesn't have empathy, inherently, it does not have empathy, right? And so to be able to, I call it the give a shit factor. Like, for instance, when my reps, you know, when we used to have a team, you know, I'd, I'd make sure that they demographically profiled, Who, you know, go find your top 25 accounts. Like, who, who are the top 25 tier one accounts that you want to get into, right? And based on very basic demographic information, you know, size, industry, number of employees, those type of things that we all know. But before they would, I would allow them to call into those accounts or prospect into those accounts, I told them, I want you to come back to me and tell me why you personally want to work with that company. Like personally, like what about them outside of the fact that they fit our profile? Is it, is a reason why you want to work? Is it because of their values? Is it because of their leadership? Is it because you really think their product's awesome and you know, whatever it is, what's that connection that you have? Because once you make that connection, your, your communication could be a lot, a lot, more authentic, but the problem yes. is, is we over-engineered the sales process right now. And we've turned these reps into robots and forcing them to do every single component of the sales process and check every single box off. And therefore, empathy is gone. We've turned sales way too transactional. And there's the give-a-shit factor just isn't there anymore. Reps don't think about the person that they're reaching out to. They think of them as a number. They think of them as an email, as a cadence. And I think that's the biggest part to me that I think you need to be successful in sales because you got to ask yourself right now the question, which is, like, what, what can you do that a computer can't? Because if a computer can yeah. do it, then like you got to look over your shoulder and say, like, how much longer am they going to pay me to do this? And when I can right. get more value out of going into ChatGPT and putting your company's name in there and telling and asking that, hey, tell me about this product. Tell me about the solution. How does it map up to other solutions? Da-da-da-da. Give me the pros and cons. I mean, I can get so much value out of engaging with an AI chatbot about your company that's going to give me real answers and comparison compared you know, based on what's out there when i get more value out of that than a rep who's just going to drone through dumbass bant questions and obviously check the boxes and drone through their stupid powerpoint presentation cuz they gotta get their badge at the end like that's not selling and so i think that you have to look at this and say okay where are the areas of human interaction that matter right curiosity that matters right i mean can ai be curious i guess it can prompt for another question and go from there but really being able to be first of all care enough to be curious so that you can ask the right questions and get people to think a little bit differently and not always trying to go for that close and right. And realizing that we're not the best fit for everybody. Right. And, and I actually do more, uh, disqualifying than I do qualifying in a lot of ways. Right. Once you kind of fit the mold of somebody, I think that that we can do, it's like, I actually start asking you all the questions why you shouldn't do business with me, because you're going to figure that out eventually. You know what I mean? So I might as well get that stuff out of the way up front. So I think those pieces and then, you know, business acumen, I always tell reps, if there's one thing that you want to do to improve your overall sales results, it's just become a better business person start reading business books start following people about trends in the industry and what's happening and level up your knowledge as opposed to what's the technique I'm going to use today to try to close this deal or what's the thing I can put in my stupid fucking subject line you know to get somebody to open it so I can get that endorphin rush and tell my boss I did a good job you know like you got to treat this as a profession most people in their profession study their profession you know what I mean like they go to school for their profession they learn accounting they learn marketing they learn and they're constantly learning. I mean, a lot of these professions, you right. actually have continuous learning credits to stay even valid in that profession. Why isn't right. that the same skills, right? Like we should have to go through a, almost like this, this process where we get certified in sales in general. And then we have to take a certain amount of courses every single year to, to maintain that certification.
1: One of the things you talked about was Xerox sales training really good and, and process. And then you have on the other side, somebody who just comes in and, and is, is selling and no process. Where does process fit into that the mix? And how much is too much or, or how little is, is not enough?
0: Yeah, I think the, the process is important. Scripts aren't. So I, I've, oh, I like that. You know, like structure, not scripts. That, that's the, the key, right? So I need structure. I, but I, but scripts, I've, I've loosened, I will say, I've loosened my opinion on scripts a little. I used to shit on scripts all the time, like, duh, oh, gross, whatever. But when you don't know what you don't know, a script is actually pretty helpful, obviously, right? Cause it's like, okay, cool. But the, the thing is, is I wanna, I want to certify you on that script, just like the slide deck. Like when people come in and and they want to be trainers for me, the first thing they have to do is they have have to present the slide deck like I present it. I need you to go through every single slide, like you can, so I know that you know how to tell this story, if you will. It's the same thing with a script if you're cold calling, right? I need to, I need to have confidence that you can walk through this script, especially when you don't know what you don't know. But if you don't make that yours very soon and thereafter, if you don't, if you know, in a month, for instance, if I start to audit your calls and you're still using the exact same script that I gave you, I'm going to be disappointed because that script isn't you. That script was to get you started. What's important to me. And this is what I think us as leaders need to need to apply a lot more is, is structure. And, and there's actually a lot of psychology around this, at least, you know, I haven't studied it, but I know it is, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I'm 47 years old. Okay. When I was, when I was a kid, my, my parents literally kicked, you know, if I was bored, my parents would kick me out of the house and say, go figure it out. Like, just don't, you know, don't kill anybody. Don't right. burn anything. down, just be home by dinner. Right. And so I figured it out. Like I, you know, would break things, I'd burn things down and whatever. Um, now, and I, and I have a 13 year old daughter, so I, I, you know, I get this. Um, now every minute of every kid's life is structured, right? They, they have yeah. school from this hour to this hour. Then they have soccer practice for two hours. Then they have their homework for this. Then they have their iPad for 30 minutes. Then they have the, And they're taught to the test. Right. So now it's MCAS and those type of things. Let's forget about critical right. thinking. You have to pass that test because you got to get that score so you can get into that college. So just like we've over-engineered the sales process, we've over-engineered sales. Uh, I'm sorry, just kids going through school. So now you have a kid who goes through entire life has been structured for them. You put them into the real world and then you have a jackass like me manager say, figure it out. And they look at you sideways like, what are you talking about? Figure it out. Tell me what to do. And most people in my role, when when you say, tell me what to do, oh, you don't know what to do. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. Here's a script. Here's a template. And if you give a script or a template to a kid who's been taught their entire life within a structure and a template, they will do the script. They will send the template. They won't think about it. They'll just do it. But if you give them structure to play within now... Right. Because I don't know about like for me, you put structure on top of me I, and I try to break it. I'm like, nope, there's got to be a better way. I, I don't like structure. Right. don't put structure on me. But I love <laughs> building structure. I love building structure. These kids thrive within structure. They, if they don't have it. They tend to fall apart, but, but they thrive within it. And they'll actually execute better than I ever would within that structure. So I think that's the balance here of, of what leadership and management has to do is provide a structure for the, the kids to play in and then test and try different approaches to figure out what's working and what's not.
1: I think that's really, really good. A good way to look at it. And, and that's exactly something I struggle with uh, early on is, is making hires and just saying, we figure it out. Or, you know, putting somebody into a role and here's what I need done and figure out how to get from point A to point B. And there are times where that worked or a lot of times it didn't. And that's exactly why is. uh, And and I think you're right. We've we've raised a generation of doers, not thinkers. And something that's that's uh, I I think sort of critical thinking is a lost art. Mm -hmm. And we need to, to bring that back. Yeah, it's
0: it's it's hard because I think the education system doesn't do many favors in any way, shape, or form. Like yeah. my daughter, there's a reason that she's yeah. in Montessori, for instance. You know, so the Montessori school system is all about experiential learning, right? It's not sit behind a desk, memorize this thing and take a test. Right. It's let's collaborate together, let's work together, let's figure out these solutions together and let's experience this stuff as opposed to just learn, like memory you know route memorization. But that's not really what most school systems um you know, promote or, or even reward, reward, right? They reward the test. They reward the right. number, right? And did you get a, whatever it is on your SAT at this point? Right. So we've, again, we've, we've created, created education systems that are more transactional. They're, they're, they're not teaching empathy. They're not teaching critical thinking. And, and you know, when these kids get out of the real world, they're in a lot of trouble without that critical thinking because right. being, able right. to figure it out on your own. Is is a huge benefit and skill that you need to develop and to be to to survive in this world. For crying out loud,
1: yeah. Well, things have definitely changed, and I like that you went back all the way, you know, two thousand ten in tech sales, and, and it has been really easy for a while. Uh, but even you know, just the availability of information, things are changing really fast. What are some of the biggest changes or trends that that you've seen that have shaped the sales profession?
0: Um. Well, I think there's, I mean, I mean, AI is a whole different conversation because I think layering that on top of what's happening right now is kind of this perfect storm of what's going on. But I think the, the proliferation of information has almost crossed the chasm to a certain degree because if we look back to, you know, 80s and 90s, the internet was barely a thing in the 90s when I graduated. Um, we still, that's why, you know, I think... Xerox is actually the one who came up with solution selling, right? Which and the whole concept of solution selling was before there was the internet, you know, it, it actually product pitching worked because you had never seen what I had before. You know what I mean? Right. It was like, it was, Hey, you don't, you don't even know this is a thing. So for me to show up at your office or show up or wherever and just present to you what this thing was that worked because people are like, Holy shit. Like I don't, yeah. I've never even thought about that before. I want one of those. Right. But then when the internet came out, you know, uh, that, that kind of took it away from us, right? Because now information was everywhere and, 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 you know, we had to start asking questions to see, like uncover these things and then present, you know, kind of a valuable solution. And then we've all heard the stat, you know, then obviously the proliferation of information went tons, right? And we've heard the stat by corporate, corporate executive board that by the time somebody comes to us, they're already 60 to 70% of the way through the sales process, blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. And that perception, that's challenger, sale, corporate, corporate executive board. And that's the, that kind of feeds into a perception that the client now has all the power because they have all the information and we now need to adjust towards them. The problem, though, is I think recently, and corporate executive board recognizes this with their new book, Jolt, um, They, uh, I think there's now too much information, right? So, so we talk a lot about the fact that well, some of our biggest, uh, biggest competitors, no decision. Right. Well, what Joel yes. said I recommend people thinking about like no decision, right? So most of us lose to no decision. They just don't make a decision. Um right. but it's actually not indecision. I'm sorry, it, it has it's it's not no decision, it's indecision because there's too many options now. There's too much information. So now these clients are stuck in this analysis paralysis scenario where they don't even know what to do with the information they have for them. So actually where I think sales reps can come in and add a ton of value, because this is where, you know, this is where the perspective of sales rep comes into play. Because there's a stat that uh, Gartner came out with recently that they interviewed Gen Xers boomers, and millennials, and B2B buyers. And they found out that, um, on average, 43% of people want a rep-free experience. They do not want a sales rep involved because most sales reps are useless, quite frankly. They, yeah, again, right. scenario it's 100% true. Ask bank questions, drone through demos, push them through their sales process. Um, right. That's bad news for us, right? The good news, though, is, is that of those 43% that wanted a rep-free experience, they had a 23% higher regret rate. So they regretted the decision more than, than if they didn't mm. have a sales involved, which to me tells me there's a ton of value for sales to add to the equation still. It's just different than we have been treating it for the past 10 years. And I think this is about helping people make decisions, not necessarily try to convince Like, I believe that in sales, if you were trying to convince somebody of something, I think you're doing it wrong, right? Sales is about yeah. helping people solve problems or achieve goals. And if you And if your problems aren't big enough and your goals aren't big enough, then why are we having this conversation? And so I think that's where it's our job now to kind of macro out and be, and, and increase our business acumen try to understand what's happening in the macro environment, and then bring that down to clients to help help them make these decisions. And guess what? Sometimes that decision is not for us. We have to be very conscious here that we are not the best fit for everybody. Right. right. And, and it goes back to why I disqualify more than I qualify, because I want to make sure that this is the right fit. We're, we're not in a situation right now where, you can stuff something down somebody's throat and not expect to get some bad reviews for it not expect that to hit you on your nps score not expect that to you know ding you in some way shape or form and because that reputation is so important out there with all the tools that are people are using to evaluate vendors and everything like that you have to go find the exact type of client that you can add the highest value to right and so i think that's where the shift of of information is. like i said i think we had it all then the client had you know, a lot of it, and then they have too much. So now we have the ability to come back in and, and, and filter that information to help them make these decisions. And that's a, that's a skill, you know, that that's a developed skill. I think it's, I'm worried because, you know, 47 years, 20 old, 27 years in the industry, I've, I've personally learned a lot just through osmosis and trial and error. Right. But I also, a sure. lot of it face to face. I did a lot of it in the bullpen. And now that we're all standing behind Zoom and we're all doing virtual meetings and all that other stuff, a lot of that development as far as that give a shit factor that that, you know, being able to siphon that information and engage with somebody and help them make the decisions. I think a lot of that has gone away because of this virtual world that we're in. And so now it's become even more transactional than it ever has been, which is really concerning.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned several different methodologies. You have consultative selling, solution selling, challenger sale. Uh, do you have a favorite one, or does it depend on the the industry?
0: <laughs> well, I got mine, so that's my favorite. But no, I don't think there's any. <laughs> of course, any, uh, well, tell
1: me about yours.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's look. I'm not a methodology guy, right? So, so for me. I, I remember early when I was taking all these trainings, you know, the Sandler, the Miller-Hyman and that type of thing. I, I kind of went in with, I think, what was the wrong mentality of, oh, well, these companies have figured it out. You know, they've created a whole process around this. So I got to right. follow the methodology. And what I realized was some of the methodology was good, but other areas I was like, ah, really? Like, I that that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so... For me, I think it's, it's important for anybody to basically build their own methodology and take the best of all the different pieces, right? So experience all of it, but then cultivate and drive your own methodology for your organization of what makes sense. And again, it goes, it's, it's good to have a structure, right? Some of these methodologies have a good structure, but there's pieces of it, it within that structure that are better and worse. Because, you know, for instance, Sandler, I love Sandler for qualification, Right. So, so when it comes to the pain funnel, the upfront contract, the reverse questioning, that's great. But Sandler is dog shit when it comes to prospecting, like just absolutely Mm. horrible. They teach people all this is how to make a cold call. Like when they, when they tell people how to make a cold call, literally they tell them, this is a cold call. That's how you should make a cold call. Right. Like, come on. So, so now my stuff, like my specialty is prospecting. Right. Okay. So, so I love so there's I don't think there's anybody else out there better at at driving front end quality meetings with what I do now, my discovery stuff is good, but I would actually bring Jim Keenan from Gap selling in for discovery or um you sure. know if that's your problem for instance um. So if you're talking to me right now, going back to you know selling, and, and I'm trying to sell you on my services, and you tell me you need sales training, well, I'm going to dig into that. What about sales training? What component? And after a bunch of questions, if I come down to the fact that your biggest problem is discovery, and that is it, like, yeah, you want to do better prospecting, and yeah, you got to get better at negotiations. But if you're like straight up, like, yeah, discovery is really where I'm going to say, you know what, I'm good at that. I'm not great at that. Uh, you need to go call Jim Keenan. You need to go call Sandler. You need to go call that. Okay, cool. And then when it comes to negotiations, right, there's like, you know, my friend Taka Pony is really good at the transparency sale. And so my point is, is that there's all these methodologies out there that I think are, in my opinion, archaic at this point, when it comes to like, if you're going to subscribe to a singular methodology, I think you're doing yourself and your business a disservice. Because there's not a singular methodology out there that is agile enough right now to address what's happening. Right? Like Miller Hyman, let's use that. They are fantastic for enterprise selling. Like if you are a major account seller and you have five accounts and that's it, Miller Hyman's fantastic. It's gonna have you map, up, map out all your white space and all these different things and figure out where all your, you know, everything is. But if you're in mid-market or SMB sales, mid-market, Miller Hyman's horrendous. You know what I mean? Right. So there's all these little pieces that I think we should be pulling to, to develop our own, and that's why I've never been really – again, it goes back to I'm a structure guy, not a methodology guy. I think methodologies, I think, are more scripts, and structure to me is something that I can start to pick and choose and find my favorite pieces to put this all together.
1: Yeah. Is there one you found that works particularly well uh, for SaaS? Or no, does it I depend mean, on, again, enterprise least... or, or mid-market SMB? no because because again i
0: think it depends on your acv it depends on your market that you go after it depends on your personas that you sell to it depends on what you sell right i i mean if you're a transaction if you're if you're selling a you know five thousand dollar you know piece of software that somebody can just buy and implement on their own versus a two three four million dollar thing and there's vastly different sales processes yes. that can be involved yes. in that and unless you're in, in like a company like salesforce for instance i mean there's no one methodology that can help support Salesforce. Exactly. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, they have, they have VSB, very small businesses, then SMB, then mid market, then enterprise. You gonna tell me you're gonna apply one Completely methodology? Different. You're out of your yeah. mind. You know. So I, I don't think there's one in the SaaS industry. Now, again, I'll, I'll lean on the fact that the reason that 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 the majority of my work is done in prospecting is because nobody has a real, there's, there's no methodology on prospecting, nor should there be quite frankly, and nobody has a great answer for it. Right? So the the structure that I use in the process and the training that I do brings them to the point where they can kind of, I teach them how to, you know, fish, if you will, as opposed to giving them a fish. Whereas a lot of these tools like the outreaches and the sales lofts and the AI tools that are coming out, that's basically giving you the fish Right, it's like yeah, push this button and yeah. fucking send a million emails type of thing. But that doesn't build business acumen. That doesn't build thought, you know, a thoughtful approach to this. So, you know, I, I don't think there's one. Um, I, I recommend my competitor, quote unquote, competitors all the time. I quite frankly don't consider myself my competitors' competitors. You know, I always told my team, if you lose sure. a deal, it's because it's either a) you were not the right fit, or b) you need to get fucking better at selling because you just got beat, right? <laughs> it's not because the client... And I don't give a shit if the, if, if the uh, competitor lied about us. That is okay. Take that into consideration. Get better. You know, I, I used to have, for instance, you know, a while back when I was selling IT services, I, w- I knew that my competition was lying about us, about what we had and what we didn't do. So when I would walk in, I, because I lost deals, because I knew they started lying, they were lying about what we did and didn't do, I would actually adjust my style and I would preemptively address the fact like I'd be like, oh, so just out of curiosity, you know, who else you've been talking to as far as IT services or whatever it is. And and look, the reason I ask is but and I would actually name drop my top competitors. Like if you're talking to all these that they're, you know, I think you're you're in the right range. But if you're talking to others, you're probably not. And by the way, I'm if you've already talked to some of them, I'm sure they're probably going to tell you X, Y, and Z about us. I'm I'm just going to ask you that we put that aside for a second because those things are not true. And I want to make sure that you understand that and why, right? First of all, I want to understand how important those things are um, for you to see if they matter. And second of all, I want to show you that that's not true, whatever people are saying about us, right? So I would adjust my style on that um, because of what I was seeing out there. So it's it's this iterative process of figuring out how to adjust to what's happening in the marketplace, how to be agile enough to, to learn, to evolve. And I, and I think that's what a, too many people are stuck in this route, you know, go through the motions approach. And quite frankly, we've turned these reps into robots and now they're getting replaced by robots and, you know, <laughs> it sucks. It's true, but it's happening.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that if you, if you build robots and that's, that's really how sales has, has happened over the, the last 10 years, for sure, is very easy to replace. If there's no oh, yeah. value being added, then it's e- really easy to automate and replace. it's
0: about adding value exactly and that's the thing it's like when i can get more value like i said when i can get more value out of going into chat gpt and asking questions about your company than i can with you like why do i need you i I don't right right i I really don't i mean even now like i I talk about like questioning skills and curiosity i mean shit, some of these ai tools that i'm 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 throwing like i'm playing around with they're curious like they they prompt you put a question in and then they give you an answer and then they give you like three or four other questions you should be asking. And it's like half of the time I look at those. I'm like, shit, that's actually a really good question. I didn't even think about asking that. And yeah. that's the, like, and like I would teach reps, like if you can ask a question to somebody that gets them to pause and think for a minute and like really think, right. Like not just like, Oh, that's a good question. And then I answer you, but like pause and go, huh, that's a good question. That is adding value to my life because you're getting yeah. me to think about something right and the danger right. that i'm seeing right now is that these ai tools are, are are getting me are adding more value to me than a sales rep is because they're asking <laughs> they're asking better fucking questions so it's yeah. it's it's interesting out there right now
1: so you think there's going to be a point where salespeople and ai are, are more working together or do you think that oh, yeah. uh, ai is going to replace them
0: no, no. Well, I think it's going to replace a large portion of the sales population. Absolutely. There's sure. no question. But I mean, I think this is the 80-20 rule, the, you know, Pareto's rule. Of, I, I think that the majority, quite frankly, and I'll you know, macro this out, I think 80% of our population, forget about sales, are a bunch of fucking sheep, quite frankly. And they're just all going through the motions and doing. And that's why I think a lot of sales reps are, you know, and some to their fault, because they're just checking the boxes and that type of people they are, but also because we've conditioned them that way, right? I mean, like a lot yep. of people... You know, I, I use the analogy of like the trophy, the trophy generation, right? Everybody gets pissed off at the trophy generation. Oh, these kids want a trophy. Well, who gave them the yeah. fucking trophies? Who <laughs> gave them the trophy? The parents exactly. did. So it's not fault. Like when I was a kid and I lost, you know, I felt bad, right? But my parents were like, well, if you don't want to feel bad, get fucking better. You know what I mean? Like win right. next time. <laughs> and so I figured out how to win. Well, now a kid loses, still feels exactly as bad as I did back then. But now instead the parents are like, oh, it's okay. You know, that type of thing. It's the same thing with these sales reps is it's, you know, grow at all costs, go, go, go. A 60% button seat's been been better than a zero, 0 percent button seat. So I don't care. We don't give feedback anymore because people are too sensitive about that. And I'm worried about you telling HR on me. So all this stuff is happening. And now, you know, we, we have to recondition. We have to reeducate ourselves on how to leverage this technology so that we can bring out the best of what humans can have here. And so I think this is the analogy that, that, you know, try to reverse engineer of where we've gotten ourselves into, but without ignoring what's happening right now. Because if you take AI out of the equation, whatever, we're we're getting slightly better, we need to get better at fundamentals and those type of things, you put AI and this accelerates the fact that we all have to step up now and figure out how to live in this new world with this stuff. And the analogies that I use are, uh, well, one couple of them here, one is back in 2017, there was an email that a rep sent me that was written by an AI bot and it was based off of my email and it was super personalized and, and it took seconds to write. And I freaked out. I was like, Holy shit. Cause that's one of the things I train is personalization, like how to go on somebody's website, do some research and write one of these emails type of thing. And I, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, uh, who I'm a fan of, he, uh, he has this 4D session where you can go to his office and, you know, you and 15 other entrepreneurs, like all of his executives come in and teach you what they're doing with the biggest brands in the world. And then Gary comes in at the end and does a Q&A with you. And I had just seen this AI email and I was genuinely freaking out. And and I asked Gary, I was like, Gary, I, I just saw a robot write an email better than I ever could. And I've been doing this for 10 years and it wrote it faster than I ever could. I go, where does that leave us as sales professionals? Right. If, if a robot is, is now can do and like if what I train is now a Gmail plugin, like wh- where does that leave yeah. us? And he goes, John, he goes, don't worry about the the tech. You're not going to beat it. Um, he goes, just be the last mile. And, and that's uh, what sat with me. He's like, look, let it do all the work. Let it let it do all the heavy lifting. Let it do the research. Let it even write the emails for you. But right before you hit send, make sure you humanize it. Because as long as there's a human on the other end of that line, a human on the other end of that email, whatever it is, yeah. there needs to be that human touch to it, right? So that's where I'm, my head's at as far as be the last mile. And then the other analogy that I that I'm trying to get people to think about because this is where I think the sales is going, is you have to be the Iron Man or the Iron Woman of sales. And when I when I say that, you know, if you think of Tony Stark, right? Tony yeah. Stark is a human being. He has everything. He's good looking. He's rich. He's super smart, right? Jerk. Anyways, um, but as a human, if he goes out there and tries to fight these aliens, right, he's, he's going to get smoked. So, right. so what does he have to do? He has to create the suit. And I don't know if you remember the yep. first Iron Man. Remember when he was in the dungeon, like in the the, the dirt hole, and he created yeah. the Iron Man. And he came out and he killed all the terrorists, right? Well, that was a big, clunky fucking thing. And then he crashed it. And it blew up all over the place, okay? Right. So that's what tech is, quite frankly. But then he took the, the suit and he added AI to it. He added Jarvis to it. Yep. Now you have the human, the suit, the tech, and the AI working together. And now you got Iron Man. And now you can go out and whoop any, any robot's ass. And so yep. that's where I think the sales reps, we got to look at it and say, how can we let this, these robots do all the stuff that we, we don't need to do? Do the research do the prep do all these things record the email you know record the conversation summarize the conversation import it into salesforce update my shit like how can we figure out how to offload all the automated shit that should be happening to technology to free us up so that we can have genuine conversations with people so we can be that last mile that's really where i see things and, and quite frankly when I say 80, 20 early on, as far as how many you know reps are going to get replaced, it's, it, it's pretty obvious to me. like I'll, I hate to say it, but the SDRs and the BDRs right the, the, the where I've built the majority of my career training those professionals, quite frankly, I think the next three to you know two to three years, that role's gone because it's all going to be automated. It's all going to be you know under operations and marketing, and we're going back to full cycle sales where a sales rep is instead of instead of me trying to think, okay, what am I going to do today? Right. It's going to say, oh, no, 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 John, um, you need to call Bill. And you don't. And the reason is because he just posted these four things on social. His company's doing this type of stuff. The macroeconomic conditions are happening here. And actually, you need to call him instead of email him because his personality profile says he likes phone better than email. And here's three snippets of things to say when you actually make that call. And now, um, now I make that call with all that information, I now make that call to Bill, and I can have a genuine real conversation. And there's going to be things that are going to be popping up while that conversation happens that are going to prompt me for other questions that I should be asking him and those type of things. I'm going to be able to be present in the conversation because I'm not going to be taking notes because everything's going to be recorded for us and transcribed in the way I want it to. Right. And I'll be able to manage that process. So that's where the best-case scenario, I think, of of, of AI and sales working together. The problem is is that I think there's a very few amount of sales reps that are going to be able to adapt to that. And that's where I I always say I think AI and tech is going to make good sales reps great, great sales reps incredible, and average sales reps irrelevant.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think you're right on there. Well, a lot of the the SaaS founders I work with – um, probably 75% of them come up through the technical ranks. And so that is their background. And the thing I hear regularly is, you know, I'm, I'm doing founder led sales, and, but I'm not great at sales. What is something that, uh, that they should be thinking about that would make them better at sales or great at sales?
0: <laughs> they are, they just don't know it. You know, <laughs> you know sales is the transfer of enthusiasm, period. It is right. I always say that the number one thing you need to have to be successful in sales is a belief in what you do. That's what you need to be like. Because because if you don't believe in what you do, then go find something else to do. Because you're you're giving us a bad name. You know, if you're just trying to get a commission check, then fuck you. Go find something else to do. Because it's it's again. But if you believe in it, if you, again, your, your solution doesn't have to be perfect for everybody, but for the right person, you got to believe that it makes a real difference. once you have that belief, you can transfer that enthusiasm. That's why when engineers, I love it. You know, I wrote a blog post a while ago called the founder's dilemma, and it's usually based off of engineering founders who, you know, who will swear to you upside down and sideways that they're not in sales. Right. But check this out. I mean, (laughs) I I challenge that. I worked with 50 engineers. I was one sales guy within 50 engineers in my first company. And, you know, ask an engineer to find the most introverted, you know, uh, engineer you'll ever come across, right? And, and, And who swears that they're not in sales. And just ask them, hey, could you describe to me the last time you fixed something, or you built something? from a technical yeah. standpoint, whether it was code that you found something and you solved that problem, whatever it is. And you literally watch them light up like a Christmas tree. And they're like, Oh, well, the other day I was, you know, I was working until, and then I found this and I did this or holy shit. And, then, and it's like, wow, yeah. that's really cool. Right? Like, I, can I have one? And if I needed that problem solved, then you just like, I like, yes. Right. But they don't think about it that way. And so right. what they do, right. and then there's then there's the other perception, which is when they get in, because they have that enthusiasm, because they have that knowledge and passion for what they do. When they start a company, they usually go out, first of all, and talk to friends, families, and fools, right? Their first circle of sure. people that they're after. And obviously, first of all, they're they're describing their product or service really passionately to a friendly audience. So they're going to get really good feedback and they might even get people to buy a few of these things, right? Whatever they're selling. Sure. And then it's just like, well, shit, this stuff's easy. Sales is easy. Everybody needs what I got, right? (laughs) Then they say, screw it. Let me hire a VP of sales. Come on in and and go, right? We got something that works. Right. Now your sales doesn't have the same passion as you do. They have not the same industry, like industry knowledge as you do. They don't have the connections and they're not going to have the friendly environment. And guess what? You haven't built out a process so that they can figure it out. And they fail miserably nine times out of ten. Yes. The first sales yes. is almost always a disastrous hire, right? Because they, they were set up for failure from the beginning. Because the, the CEO thinks, oh, well, I just I just gotta bring somebody in who knows what they're talking about when it comes to sales right. and fix all these problems. Wrong. Wrong. You have to create, let's go back to structure. You have to be a founder-led sales up front so that you can figure out what the process is. Like, what is it? And and, and the, the funny thing is, is I actually think, and this is what should resonate with engineers. I think I think sales is far more science than it is art. Far more. The science lays the foundation for the art form to be that much more effective. The structure and the yeah. process that you put in place allows for the art form to, to, to come into it. Like, and that's the personalized stuff and that's the regional stuff. But that science foundation, if that's not there, I don't care how artistic you are, it's going to fall apart. And so that's why you have to kind of map out, okay, for instance, if I'm a founder, I am putting a structure in place that says, how many calls, like, how many prospecting activities do I need to do? Or what channels can I find meetings through, right? And there's, you know, referrals, there's website, there's obviously outbound, there's networking and all these different things. And I'm gonna look at those things and say, okay, where 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 do I have time as a founder to focus my efforts when it comes to these things? And I'm gonna try doing those things. And then I'm gonna measure how many times I reach out to somebody versus how many times they say yes and how many times they turn into a meeting and how many times that turns into a proposal yes. and how many times it closes. So I'm going to map out at least a baseline structure here. I'm going to keep notes on every single call I have on every objection that a client has when I talk to them. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to find out who all the competition is out there that I'm actually working on. And I'm going to build this as I go because I'm doing the activities anyways. You know what I mean? As a founder, I'm, I'm out there, I'm doing my thing. I just need to pay attention to it. And I need to boil that down into some type of meaningful structure that I can then hand to somebody and then bring somebody along with me. I, I actually, instead of buying, instead of getting a VP of sales at a super expensive, I mean, unless they are in your industry, and know exactly what to do and take you to that next level, I'd actually rather hire that 24, 25, 26 year old kid and and have them sit with me in meetings and, and watch the game and let's develop this together and then eventually transition so that they can do it and bring me on board as opposed uh-huh. to me bringing them in, and then they will evolve to the VP of sales eventually because I'll, I'll teach them how to do it.
1: That's a really, really good strategy, and, and you're so right that so many of those first sales hires fail for for a lot of reasons. Exactly what you said. Or founders, they they say, "Hey, I'm not good at sales, and so I'm going to hire. I need sales, so I'm going to hire somebody," and and that it, it's destined to fail without having that that process in place. And just hiring somebody doesn't bring that process. No, it does not. <laughs> Uh, so what should what should founders do when they are ready to transition? Uh, how should they qualify and find the the right fit? Whether that is the VP of Sales, whether it's a sales rep, you know, what are some things that they can do to to increase that percentage of success?
0: Uh, you know, look, there's a there's a lot of interviewing tips out there. You know, for me, I think a lot of it comes down to values, quite frankly. I think if the the, first of all, I think the executive uh, needs to really have a clear vision of what they want. from a business standpoint, Um, you know, are you a growth company or are you a lifestyle company? You can't be both. Right. Either you're, you're the lifestyle company, you maximize profits and you want to get to a certain level and everybody's happy and you kind of do really high quality work and take the money out and put it in your pocket, or you're a growth company and you go for, really grow fast and you take all the money and put it back into the company so you can keep growing. And I think a lot of founders, first of all, need to have that conversation with themselves before they hire anybody. Right. Because they're, they're, those are two different types of profiles of people that you want to hire. Um, sure. So, that's one. And then the values part of it. So having a vision, right. And being clear on that vision and then really understanding what your personal values are, because if you're a founder, your personal values are your company values. So going yeah. through the value exercise of like, you know, okay. You know, and usually there's like, you know, 50 values that you can choose from and you get it down to 20 and then you get it down to five and then you prioritize like, what is the most important thing for me as it relates to, you know, my values. Right. And based on that, then you look for people that share those values with you. Because if you and I have the same values, we can argue, but ultimately we'll come to a place where mutual respect, okay, we might agree to disagree type of thing, but whatever. Whereas if you and I do not have the same values, we're just gonna argue and we're gonna tear each other apart. And so I think first and foremost is being clear on your vision, uh, being clear on your values, and then interviewing based on those values, quite frankly um and and asking and, you know and, and looking for those those attributes that that are important to you and your business then from there you know google what's the best way to you know have a <laughs> have a interview <laughs> question but, but i think that that part is the foundation for me of everything um and so that's where i would
1: suggest people start excellent excellent Well, you've been selling a a long, long time. What's the funniest or most memorable sales pitch or negotiation that you've ever had? Oh, Jesus. Uh,
0: The funniest. (laughs) um, I would say the one I learned the most. Well, I wouldn't say funny. This is when I got kicked in the teeth. You know, I. I remember I was doing sales training at, um, at Basho and I was just on board and one of their, be- one of their customers they'd had for the longest time, like had been like our, 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 CEO had brought them on board and then he, then the CEO obviously, you know, kind of elevated and then kicked it to the VP of sales eventually. And the VP of sales would train them and then the VP of sales kicked them to another trainer and then it kicked them to me. So they had been a long standing customer and I, you know, now I took them over when I came on board and the the customer rightfully so it was one of those things where the customer spent like 50 60 grand a year with us consistently but there was other clients that are spending two three four five hundred thousand dollars a year with us so they kind of got you know kick kick the can down the road and i remember when i took it the client was not happy because we had never customized anything for them we hadn't really gone overboard at all with them to try to really you know and their longest standing customer we should know about their business when we're training them right and I was convinced, right? And there was like a $200,000 contract on the table that they were dangling ahead of me to, you know, say, Hey, like, yeah, but unless we get this customized, we ain't going to do that. And I was so convinced I was, I was the right guy for the the mix. And I remember, you know, trying to convince them, like, I will do this, you know, just like, just give me the chance, like sign that contract. And I promise you, I'll customize everything. And, And the guy was like, John, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I vividly remember walking around in the in the office with my headset on like hardcore negotiating with this guy right and and i was like you just got it and i was up, uh, my my fault was i was trying to convince him and like i said like i i don't st- sales is not about convincing anybody of anything right and but i was stuck in trying to convince him because i wanted to be a big guy you know the company and you know, this rah-rah great client nobody's ever gotten that much out of this customer or everything and i finally beat this guy into submission and he said, fine, John, if you customize it and it's to our liking, and actually he offloaded it to, to one of the other enablement people's liking, not even his liking, but you know, let's call her Sarah. If Sarah um, says that it, it's customized enough, then we'll go ahead and sign that contract. And I was like, great. So i <laughs> I, I stayed up all night. I literally slept in the office because I customized the shit out of this presentation for them. I went back and I looked at all the data and I, and I, mean, I didn't sleep. I, well, I did. I passed out at the desk, you know, probably four o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I sent it over to him and I, I, for, I told my boss that I was guaranteeing that that $200,000 contract was going to come in because the guy told me if I customized it and like, I'm, I'm smart. I customized the way you wanted it. Right. So I put my neck on the line. I stuffed it down his throat. I told my boss I was going to close a two hundred thousand dollar deal, and sure as shit, they didn't close. Obviously, and he called me up and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, she she didn't like you know she, it's still not there, John. So uh, we're going to put a hold on this, and then we'll get back to you." And I was devastated. Wow. Uh, but the problem was was because you know the learning lesson obviously was I made that all about me. I made that all about, I thought I was making about them. I thought I was because I'm a good guy. I'm a smart kid. I want to make, I want to make a difference for your business. And I obviously wanted to make a difference for our business. And, but it was, it was very ego driven for, on my end. And I did not listen to the client in any way, shape or form. I didn't understand why their frustrations were, you know, truly understand and be empathetic about the situation they were. And I, I got egg on my face across the board, you know, and that customer, by the way, never worked with us again. Wow.
1: wow. Yep. So I don't well, how say is this a biggest
0: week- learning. Yeah. Learning. <laughs> learning?
1: Yeah. So how do we overcome those objections without being slimy or feeling like a used car salesman?
0: I, you know, I, again, I think you just gotta. You, it's gotta be about them, right? I mean, when we ask questions, you gotta have the reason for your question. Like, why are you asking this question? And if that reason is self-centered, then check yourself. You know what I mean? The reason should be about yeah. them. I, mean, I think when it comes to objections. Objections are, are, you know, in a lot of ways, buying signs, um, because if they weren't objecting, that means they really don't care. But if they're objecting, that shows at least they care, um, about some, something. And I think that, you know, the biggest thing of, of overcoming is, is again, just be curious. Right? I, there's some data out there from Gong and other resources that talk about how the, you know, they compare the best reps versus average reps. And they say that the best reps, um, on average or yeah, when given an objection, The best reps answer that objection 54% of the time with a question. Average reps answer an objection 32% of the time with a question. So at a bare minimum, you just ask a question, clarify, help me understand. What do you mean by that? Where's that coming from? Like an easy one here for me, when somebody says, John, you know, an objection, you're too expensive. Uh, Okay. Well, compared to what? Compared (laughs) to my competitors, compared to doing nothing, compared to missing your quota this quarter. Compa- like, help me understand. Like, and by the way, how do you look at cost? Do you look at it as the price on the on the page that I sent you? Or do you right. look at this whole cost of ownership? Or do you look at like, how? help me understand? Right? So I, like, and, I, and I'm not saying that to be a jackass. I'm not saying that to, to, to deal with your objection. I'm saying that because I'm genuinely curious where that's coming from. Like, you know, cost is a relative thing. If if I right. if I can make you $20 million, then cost is irrelevant. In my opinion, I could charge you $10 million, for something. If if I could convince you that I would bring $20 million worth of value to that, right? So, so that's why I think we need to do, you know, discovery. I mean, and that goes back to discovery, like the tactical component of dealing with an objection is best way is to ask a question. But the, if you reverse engineer it, it's all about discovery. It's the questions you ask during discovery to uncover those real pains, that real impact, that real problem. And then you have all the information you need to battle whatever objections, right? If you're seeing right. objections that are that you're not that you know that surprise you at the end, you've done something wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you should know if you're the high cost provider in your space, you should know they're going to bitch about price, so you should deal with that early. Of course. You know what I mean? You shouldn't be like, oh my god, like you you think we're too expensive? Even though I know we're twice as expensive as all the other options out there. <laughs> Holy right, I didn't realize that. Like bring that up front. Like one of my favorite objection handling techniques is is the preemptive strike. We know the objections common, you just use it before they do. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like price is an easy one. Like, Hey, so, um, you know, when you ask me price, right? So John, how much is this? Well, let me ask you, I'm happy to share with you price. I need some parameters here of like how many of this and how many of that so I can give you a range here. But let me ask you, um, what's your decision criteria for making this decision? Like, could you, and you, could you prioritize it for me? Like when you're looking at all the vendors, what are the things you're gonna compare us about? And where, by the way, where does price fall on that list? Because, and preemptive strike, because if price is your number one factor for making this decision, we can make this conversation really short. Because we're right. not the cheapest, nor do we ever want to be. So if that's really the thing that you are most evaluating on this, let's let's call it a day. I'm going to save you some time here. Thank you very much. Right?
1: Like yeah. you should be able to do that. So. Oh, really good. Where can people learn more about you and about JB sales online? Yeah, I
0: appreciate it. So, website's got everything, right? jbarrows.com. Uh, jbarrows. dot com um, and they can hit me up on any uh, social channels. Obviously, John Barrows on LinkedIn. I, I this sounds like the humble brag. It's not. It's more annoying. I've hit the thirty thousand limit on connections on LinkedIn, so I can't accept any more connections. But you can still follow me and mail me those type of things. Uh, if anybody wants free training or or has questions, they can hit me up on Instagram. Uh, I got my Instagram handles John M as in Michael Barrows. That's where I do all my free consulting. If people have questions, and then I got my podcast too, right? I got the Make It Happen Monday podcast where we have conversations similar to this about business, entrepreneurship, all that stuff. So a bunch of different ways, but the website is probably the easiest way to go find out as much as uh, as you want.
1: Fantastic. We'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. Absolutely, but John. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for being on Task Fuel.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jeff. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks again, John, for coming on the show and sharing your insights. You can learn more about John at jbarrows.com. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sassfuel.com. And be sure and check us out on YouTube as well. Subscribe or follow us there. And everyone who subscribes this week gets an instant leftover replicator. Enjoy your favorite Thanksgiving dishes all year round. Scan your plate and voila, never say goodbye to grandma's stuffing again. Join us next Tuesday where our founder is Andrew Swyler, founder and strategic entrepreneur. He is the CEO of Lanteria. We'll be talking about the art of persuasion, skillfully converting B2B SaaS leads into super happy customers. And next week on our SaaS fuel expert series, we follow that up with virtual CMO and go to market builder, Mark Donegan. We'll take a deeper dive into B2B SaaS marketing and what will work in 2024. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Remember debate ideas respect people, and love one another. I'll see you next time, safe travels, and as always, enjoy the journey.
0: Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, Please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll
1: be sure to read these out on future episodes.